This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Patient safety became a priority as far back as 1999 when the Institute of Medicine's landmark report to Air is Human showed more people die every year from preventable medical errors than from car accidents, up to 98,000 people a year. Despite efforts to improve patient safety since that report, the number's only gone up. The Journal of Public Safety claims medical errors are currently the third leading cause of death, uh, claiming the lives of at least 200,000 people annually, costing upwards of $17 billion every year. With this attention on patient safety, though, why are the numbers still going up? Many advocates think transparency could be the best way to lower the bill, improve overall safety. ProPublica's Surgeon Scorecard shines the light, and reaction to this has been mixed, criticized for methodology, and applauded for starting the conversation about doctor safety. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can always find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. How do you choose a doctor? How hard is it to find information about your doctor's record? Joining us first is Marshall Allen. He's a reporter covering health care for ProPublica and the co-author of ProPublica's recent report, Making the Cut, Why Choosing the Right Surgeon Matters Even More Than You Know. He joins us from the Midtown Manhattan studios of NPR in New York. And uh, Marshall Allen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me here. So your story releases data on the complication rates for about 17,000 surgeons around the country. Uh, tell us briefly how you started on this quest to find this information. Well, ProPublica, our tagline is journalism in the public interest. And we are a nonprofit investigative news organization based in New York City. And we have interacted with hundreds of patients who have been harmed while undergoing medical care. And we've talked to lots of doctors, scores of uh, doctors, surgeons, medical researchers, and um, the problem since that 1999 Institute of Medicine report seems to be getting worse by more recent estimates. I mean, they think uh, they estimate that as many as 200,000 or more patients a year are dying in hospitals alone from preventable medical harm related to their medical care. And so it's an enormous problem. Um, the medical community does not comprehensively track um, these injuries and infections and medical errors. And so one of our priorities, we have two primary audiences for this project. One is the medical community. Um, we talk to doctors and surgeons across the country, um, the same people who helped us uh, put together this methodology and this report. And they said one of the problems is they don't really know how their complication rates stack up compared to other providers in other communities. And in a lot of cases, they don't even know their own complication rates because those things are not carefully tracked. So one of the goals was to provide meaningful information to the medical community so that they could follow up on the complications that we identified um, and hopefully, um, you know, put some practices into place to prevent them, you know, by identifying surgeons uh, with the lowest complication rates. Um, you know, other uh, surgeons and people in the hospitals might be able to see what are these surgeons doing or what are the teams doing that these surgeons work with um, that actually is leading to um, a lower rate of the type of complications that we were looking at. It, it, um, the it, other uh, – oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say ahead, the other please. audience obviously is patients. Yes. And the other big problem I was going to mention is that um, patients who are looking to have an elective surgery have almost no information – to act upon to make a meaningful decision and an informed decision. And so uh, we looked at eight elective surgeries, um, hip replacements, knee replacements, three types of spinal fusions, uh, laparoscopic gallbladder removal, 
and prostate resection and prostate removals. And we pick those surgeries because they're generally done on um, relatively healthy patients and they're relatively low-risk surgeries. The complication rates are um, in published literature, say, around 4%. Um, so these are uh, surgeries where patients have the ability to choose, and they also have a realistic expectation of not suffering some type of harm when they undergo the surgery. So the two things, then, just to reiterate for people, is we're talking about elective surgeries here, the type that usually have very low complication rates. You're not talking about people who come in with a heart attack and whether or not they uh, have a, a positive or a negative outcome from that. So it's very it's it's comparing apples to apples in one way. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the, the complications that you're talking about, because there's a wide range of things that we might call complications. Yeah, exactly. We are only, you know, you can't, the data that we're looking at is administrative billing data that's um, made publicly available by Medicare, which is the country's insurance for patients over 65, mostly. Um, and that data, um, it's not clinical data, so it's limited in what you can tell from it. And what we did is limited um, the type of complications we identified to things that really are reliably found in that data. So one type of complication that we're looking at is anytime a patient goes into one of these uh, hospitals for one of these low-risk elective surgeries and dies on that admission, that would be considered one complication that we would look at. Um, that's not the most common type of complication in this case. Um, the other type of complication that's a little more common, but still not a common complication, is um, anytime a patient suffers some type of a infection or a surgical injury or a blood clot or some other type of problem that that's severe enough that it requires them to be readmitted to the hospital within 30 days. And um, we, of course, don't have the clinical judgment to decide which complications are related to the surgery. So what we did is we identified every case where patients were readmitted within 30 days to the hospital after one of these types of low-risk elective surgeries. And we had um, a panel of doctors, including surgeons who perform each of these procedures, tell us which complications we should consider to be related to the surgery and therefore count as complications. So the complications tend to be things like um, readmissions for uh, surgical side infections, blood clots. Those are definitely the most common ones. But you also have things like mechanical problems with the orthopedic device, post-operative pain, hemorrhaging, uh, or uncontrolled bleeding, those types of complications. Um, you know, what we can't see are things that are like longer-term complications that are also very important. And so what we tell people is this is a starting point to um, get more information, talk about these things with your surgeon. Um, and it's also a good starting point for the surgeons and the hospital uh, teams themselves to try and identify um, best practices and um, make improvements in their quality. So this, this panel of doctors that you're talking about, this helps you control for things like hospital-acquired infections that may have nothing to do with the surgery itself that yeah, someone so else may have been responsible for. Well, yeah, the, or just sometimes, you know, patients are older and they're sicker and they, the complications that require the readmission don't have anything to do with the surgery. So we didn't count things like pneumonia. We didn't count congestive heart failure. We didn't count any um, trauma, accident, or um, a heart attack. These are things that possibly would be related to the surgery, 
But when we talked to the surgeons who did these procedures um, and the doctors um, who advised us, they just said it's too hard to tell from the data that we have whether or not these things are related. And so we wanted to be very conservative and just identify uh, complications that clearly seem to be related to the surgery. We're talking today with Marshall Allen, who's a reporter who covers health care for ProPublica, and we're talking about their new report, Making the Cut, Why Choosing the Right Surgeon Matters Even More Than You Know, and the new tool that came out to tell us more about surgeries and how safe and effective uh, surgical procedures are in hospitals around the country. Uh, joining us in studio today are two physicians uh, who want to help us walk through some of what's in this report. Dr. Rocco Orlando is a general surgeon. He's senior VP and chief medical officer at Hartford Healthcare. Dr. Orlando, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks very much. And also Dr. Peter Albertson is here. He's a professor of surgery, chief and program director of the Division of Urology at the University of Connecticut Health Center. Doctor, welcome. Thank you. I'm wondering first, Dr. Albertson, if you would like to sort of pick up a little bit on what you are hearing from Marshall Allen. You've read through this report, and he says that ProPublica really has two target audiences here, the public, who needs to know which doctors are doing a good job and which doctors aren't, and then also, of course, you, uh, you and others in your profession. So from where you sit, what do you see in this report? I think it's an excellent start. Um, It's precisely the limitations that frustrate many physicians. Uh, The complications listed um, are relatively rare, and therefore, I would argue uh, it's uh, the unusual physician that should have a higher rate of complication. Low rates are occasional one, once in a lifetime or once even in, a, in several years could potentially there be there by chance. But the real complications, for example, in my field, which is the prostate surgery field, are the long-term complications, the risk of incontinence, impotence, and stricture. And unfortunately, you can't measure those from claims data, or they're extremely difficult from claims data. And it's the limitation of administrative claims data that is is, is the difficult uh, hurdle that uh, many uh, uh, people who try to evaluate outcomes and evaluate health care uh, keep bumping into. When you say claims data, Marshall referred to it as billing data. You're talking about the Great. same thing. That's exactly right. So what other data might be out there other than that? If we were trying to get a, a snapshot or a longer-term picture of this information, where would we go other than the billing or claims data? Unfortunately, only, the only place to really go is to the patient. And, and up until now, we don't have a mechanism. That's been a very expensive a, approach that many of us in outcomes research do do. But I would argue in the growing electronic era of, of survey monkeys and all sorts of other electronic tools, virtually every patient now has an iPhone, being able to send out electronic post questionnaires and begin to tabulate that direct to patient, to me, is a whole new frontier uh, that is just about to open in our field. Dr. Orlando, what do you see in this report? So, one, we really want to applaud ProPublica for bringing this forward to really have the debate. I think it's really appropriate to have this kind of data out there. And we think it really will stimulate the the, the medical community to really look at our results and look at our outcomes as we try and improve them. At the same time, we think that the individual patient should be very cautious in using this data to make a decision about picking a surgeon uh, because of the inherent limitations of using billing data uh, to draw clinical conclusions. Now, the, the, the question you asked is where's the, where's the real gold standard data? It is from clinical data, and it really comes from clinical registries. And so there are in formation a number of large clinical registries that bring together data from 
from the patient's record that really are gold standard about outcomes. Uh, here in Connecticut, we have the Connecticut Surgical Quality Collaborative, and there are 21 hospitals in the, Connecticut, in, in the state that participate. And we're making major investments in the, in the case of Hartford HealthCare. Uh, this is uh, over a million dollars a year in terms of people and technology and resources to create registries to look for this data and to drive performance improvement. So this is something that you're looking at. You're doing more in Connecticut. I'm assuming, though, that this is not nationwide. Not every state has the sort of comprehensive look at the clinical data that you're talking about. So the, we, this is a participation, this is called the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program, and it is a program of the American College of Surgeons. Uh, Connecticut happens to be one of the nation's leaders, and uh, the majority of the hospitals are participating. But this is a national movement uh, to really provide that gold standard data with reports that really drill down to the surgeon and patient level to really drive improvement in performance and to really look at those outcomes. So that's really where the, where the needle is moving, and increasingly, you will be seeing that we will be increasing reporting this kind of data publicly. Uh, it's happened in heart surgery, open heart surgery. Uh, there's a, a similar registry uh, uh, published by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. And through a partnership with Consumer Reports, many hospitals voluntarily report their outcomes uh, with respect to heart surgery. You, I, I think consumers are going to demand this information. Uh, it's the right thing to do. We're going to respond. But we're building the infrastructure to make this reporting to a greater extent. So, so uh, Marshall Allen, you've heard from the two physicians here, and it sounds as though you and they are both talking about the same thing, which is limitations on the data we have right now. Dr. Orlando's talking about new registries trying to get together more clinical data. Dr. Albertson's talking about just talking to more and more patients. Could you just talk, Marshall, about those instances and also some of the battles you had in trying to find the right data to actually create the tool here? Well, yeah, those efforts that they mentioned are uh, fantastic, and uh, it's wonderful that those things are happening. Um, but what I would point out is that less than one – I mean, a recent study um, by Johns Hopkins came out and showed that only about 1% of any healthcare is being measured in any way at all by registries. And the registries um, don't publicly report any of the information, or very few of them do. Um, so that's one of the limitations with the um, registry idea. It's not – capturing most of the surgeries um, or procedures or medical care, and it's not being publicly reported. The, the NISQIP database, for instance, uh, only about 600 hospitals out of about 4,000 nationwide participate in the NISQIP database. So um, it sounds like they're doing great stuff, but there's very um, maybe 20% of hospitals are participating, and then they're not publicly reporting what takes place in the um, in the, the analysis. And so for patients... Um, you know, it's it's uh, still a black box. I mean, there's still nowhere patients can go to get informed. And so from our perspective, again, we're, we're doing journalism in the public interest. Um, we think that patients have a right to know. Um, it's limited, um, but it is meaningful. And so we think that patients uh, should be able to know that. And then also, you know, transparency uh, spurs improvement. And the National Patient Safety Foundation put out a really important report in January called Shining a Light. And it talked about how transparency um, really spurs improvement on multiple levels. And yet it's rarely practiced um, in the medical field. And so that's another thing, motivation of ours is we know that when we um, provide transparency, that will motivate healthcare providers to improve. Um, I, I do want to point out, because the doctors both mentioned this, the type of complications we're looking at are quite rare. Um, overall, 
uh, when you look at these low-risk elective surgeries, on average, they are low-risk elective surgeries, and that's what our analysis found. But the kind of troubling thing is the variation that you see. Um, there are providers um, who have um, higher complication rates than others, and there are providers who have uh, lower complication rates than others. And so um, it, it seems like by providing the transparency, what our hope is is that people can really try and learn from the, um, the providers who have the lowest complication rates and improve overall. When we come back from our break, we want to actually get into some specifics about what this tool might tell you about your specific physician. But Dr. Alberson, before we take that break, I'm wondering if you could just respond to that. When we're talking about low rates of complications, a tool like this might point out that one surgeon had one or two complications over the course of a certain number of procedures. Can you tell us whether or not that definitively tells us something about the quality of that surgeon or what else we might need to read into into this data before we say, oh, my goodness, this surgeon doesn't do a good job. This other one does. Um, I'll address it this way. The answer is yes if you have an adequate sample size. And in the uh, articles that were uh, that are reviewed um, from ProPublica, I think when their sample size get quite meaningful, the the uh, uh, surgeons that have high rates of complications do uh, deserve some further scrutiny and clearly does raise a problem. Uh, the issue comes up when you have the lower volume uh, surgeons. I'm not saying they're not doing a lot because you're only you're only measuring the patients that are done under Medicare. The question becomes, what's the difference between a low-complication surgeon and a medium-complication surgeon? I, I, for one, am listed in that registry. I've had zero complications, yet according to the methodology, I'm listed only as a medium uh, rather than a low-volume surgeon. I can't do better than zero, but because my N or sample size is small, uh, that puts a limitation. And my concern is, especially for younger surgeons who are excellently trained and just starting out in their practice, before they build a sufficient volume, they're actually held, I think, uh, to a different standard or potentially uh, patients will read into that they're not quite as competent as someone else who might be. So it, it gets to the statistics. Uh, the bottom line is I think the data is very accurate for the high complication surgeon. I'm a little less sure that this is relevant for the very low volume surgeon, uh, excuse me, for the low complication rate surgeon unless they have a very high volume. D does that sound right to you, Dr. Orlando? It does, and I would actually look at the data and take a slightly different take on it. Okay. If you And I'm going to give you the example of looking at uh, joint replacement surgery and the ProPublica data. Now, if I look at how our surgeons, how my hospitals had performed in joint replacement surgery, we were basically average, and there were a couple high performers and maybe one or two low performers. Uh, but I look at that not as evidence of individual surgeon performance, but it was a system problem. So we happened to, we, we, prior to the ProPublica data, we knew that our lagging performance or the fact that we were average, not above average, over overall for that procedure was entirely related to the complication of postoperative blood clots. And we were aware of that two years ago, so really began a major initiative to reduce the frequency of postoperative blood clots by standardizing practice among all of our surgeons, sharing best practices among all of the orthopedic surgeons who performed that procedure to drive improved performance. And so the data is old in that it goes back as long as four years. So we, in fact, are moving the needle and are dramatically reducing the incidence of that complication. So we believe in the power of the data. In this case, it actually validates something that we were aware of and, and are working on. Uh, but again, it, the caution would be you might not make your decision about picking your surgeon on the basis of that data uh, and, and, and largely on that single complication. We're going to take a break. We're talking today with Dr. Rocco Orlando from Hartford HealthCare, Dr. Peter Albertson from the University of Connecticut Health Center. 
and also Marshall Allen, who is a ProPublica reporter who helped to put together Making the Cut, why choosing the right surgeon matters even more than you know. It provides a tool to let you know about how surgeons fare on a scorecard in many elective surgeries. When we come back, we're going to be talking with Lisa Freeman, who's executive director of the Connecticut Center for Patient Safety. We'll have you join us as well, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. We're talking about the high rates of medical errors in the country and a new ProPublica report listing the complication rates of almost 17,000 surgeons nationwide. We're talking about transparency in healthcare. If you want to join us, 860-275-7266. Joining us in the studio today is Lisa Freeman, who's executive director of the Connecticut Center for Patient Safety. And Lisa, welcome to our program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You've been hearing in the first segment a bit about this ProPublica methodology and from some physicians who have been working to provide more data and work through some of this with their patients as well. I guess I want to get back to the beginning, though, with you. How big a problem are medical errors in America right now? Medical errors are huge. Um, We know that the statistics that are currently accepted say that 200,000 to up to 400,000 people die as a result of medical error every year in the United States from things that should not be happening. So we, we want to do everything we can to to reduce that. It's one death from something that shouldn't happen is too many. And where are these deaths coming from? We talked to, with Marshall in ProPublica a moment ago about trying to control in his study for the types of complications that may come from some hospital-acquired infection, which may or may not have anything to do with the surgeon uh, who did, did the surgery. Can you break down whether or not these deaths are primarily coming from something that happens in the hospital having to do with the hospital-acquired infection, some sort of complication that comes from surgery, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I can't really break it down. I can tell you that what I've seen in the different literature that I've read suggests that the cause often is multifaceted and that it's not just a bad surgeon or just an occurrence in the OR or just something that happened on the floor of the hospital, but there are many different things. And oftentimes there there are system issues that need to be addressed. It's not just a one-person deal. Well, because it's just not a one-person deal, that's one of the issues that some people have had with a tool like this, because while the ProPublica tool opens up the conversation about patient safety and surgical safety, it, it puts individual people's names on it. And as I think we all know, when you go into a hospital, it's a team full of people from the folks who are taking care of you pre-op to the operating room and the five or six or more people who are involved in that to the nurses who take care of you afterward. So do you think as a patient advocate, it's fair to say, let's grade surgeons based on all of these other outcomes that could happen? Well, I, I think we do have to to look at the surgeons in terms of of trends, not necessarily that surgeon A had a, a one or two or three complications after surgeries over a course of many years, but rather we need to see the outliers, the surgeons that are having tremendous numbers of complications. And more so, I mean, we certainly want to highlight the surgeons that are doing an outstanding job. And as the data shows, 
there are 11% of the surgeons that actually account for 25% of the complications. So there is a trend. Sometimes there are surgeons that just have practices that need to be reviewed and, and perhaps remediated a little bit. It doesn't mean that they're they're going into the situation saying, I want to hurt somebody today. It means that something's happening, and we need to look at what's happening, what's going into it, and what we can do to effectively change it. Marshall Allen, I want to go back to you on that, about that number that Lisa just referenced that I talked about in our lead to the, this show. 11% of the surgeons accounting for 25% of the complications. How surprising to you is that? And is that really the key finding in here that you're trying to highlight those surgeons, which clearly are you know, resulting in the most complications for patients? Well, I don't, honestly, I don't feel like that is so surprising. I mean, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of studies that have shown before that there is a variation um, in the complication rates and in the performance of individual providers. Um, what I would say, though, about the um, responsibility of individual surgeons is that by naming the surgeons, um, we we really can't say in this data who is to blame um, or who caused uh, these different complications. Something like an infection, for instance, can be very difficult to figure out how it was caused. Um, but everybody does agree and generally agrees that surgeons are responsible for the entire episode of care, um, particularly related to these low-risk elective um, surgeries. And so when a patient, um, you know, when a surgeon does an operation, they are responsible for the post-operative care and any complications that arise and things like that. And so by naming the, surger, the surgeons, what we're doing is we're assigning responsibility. They're the ones that perform the operation. They're the ones that are responsible. It does not mean that they're the ones that are to blame, but they're also in the best position to figure out what might have happened um, and then uh, possibly correct it. Um, or rectify it in some way so future patients can be protected. Um, so I think um, the most surprising thing, or I think maybe the, the biggest breakthrough, is to show um, where the variation um, exists. And so as the doctors have pointed out, when you have low volumes of cases, you know, not when surgeons don't do many cases, the statistical significance just isn't as high. And so it really is more meaningful when people have done enough procedures um, that they actually do stand out. But anyone who's in our low, um, you know, kind of complication rate, uh, adjusted complication rate category, um, or in the higher category, um, generally they've done, um, well, at least in the low, they've done enough procedures that um, statistically it is more meaningful that they're most likely in that low category. So most people in our analysis are in that medium range. Uh, a lot of times it is because of volume, um, because there isn't as much statistical certainty. Um, and then those who are in the high category um, also, like let's say they've done a lower number of procedures, well, they have a, a higher rate of complications even with that low number of procedures. Or if they've done a high rate of procedures, you know, we had surgeons who, um, you know, did 100, 100 of these low-risk surgeries and had 10% um, or more of their patients suffering these types of complications, whereas um, nationally there were hundreds of surgeons who did hundreds of these surgeries who had zero complications. So uh, a 10% complication rate doesn't necessarily sound that high, but when you look at all the surgeons who had zero and performed hundreds of cases, um, it does stand out. It, it sounds, well, I'll say it sounds very high to me. And Dr. Orlando, I mean, how do you chart that at, at Hartford HealthCare? When, when you see complication rates, I mean, what should they be? Just so that we understand as, as a consuming public, 
what it is you consider to be a high rate of complications? So I think it varies by the procedure. There are complications that are expected with some very complex procedures. There are others that are, have low complication rates. So you need. To, so I think it's the, the, using the data uh, to eliminate variation is really the key. It's really pushing that data out to the surgeon so that they understand if they are an outlier, if they're varying, and putting systems in place because, this, as we've alluded to, this is a team sport. It's not just the surgeon. Uh, the surgeon is, however, the leader of the team and does have that responsibility for organizing the care and making sure that there are enough fail-safes that everything that needs to occur does, in fact, occur. But it's the data. It's pushing that out, seeing where there's variability, and eliminating it. Now, there are that small number of surgeons who may need to be uh, uh, managed and counseled to stop doing a particular procedure if they are unable to move their complication rate down into that acceptable range. Did you have a thought on that, Dr. Albertson? I, I actually agree with Dr. Orlando. The, uh, the whole issue of teams, care pathways are clearly where most people who are interested in quality improvement are headed. One of the ways you can solve the sample size problem is aggregating data among all the surgeons in a given hospital and report out at the hospital level, not necessarily at the individual surgeon level. So there are a number of things that can be done, but I agree the surgeon is generally viewed as a captain of the ship. Any surgeon who is noticing more of these complications probably should question his commitment and how well he is pressuring his institution to build those uh, uh, healthcare teams and build the standard care pathways. But the other big problem is the investment in, in, in quality improvement uh, infrastructure. By that, I mean electronic medical records and all the ways we are beginning to track and accumulate data. Uh, these are enormous investments being made by institutions. And as we move from individual practice uh, scenarios to more and more healthcare systems, that's where these investments are coming from. The individual surgeon doesn't have the capability of investing in the infrastructure you need. That depends on larger, uh, larger aggregates. I, I'd like to get Lisa in on this because I think that this is interesting is hospitals clearly are changing, right? They've been changing over, over time. And so on one hand, we're talking about a tool that rates individual surgeons, even though we know that they're part of a team, that gives you a little sense about individual surgeon performance. Then there's what Dr. Robertson is talking about, which is um, maybe ranking by hospitals, where you have the entire team looked at. But now we've gone so far beyond just hospitals being a place where you go to being an entire web of a healthcare system in Connecticut, we have just, frankly, a few of these that combine, you know, UConn, uh, Yale, Hartford HealthCare, that combine many, many physicians of various types into one system. So from a patient safety standpoint, what's the thing we should be looking at? Should we be looking more at the individuals, the teams, or the larger systems of care? Um, I think we have to keep in mind that we are dealing with teams now, and we're dealing with a continuum of care. And that team is made up of individuals. So we need to look at both the smaller parts of the team, the physicians, the surgeons, the nurses, all of the team members. And we also have to keep in mind that the patient is a team member as well and that they should be part of this entire process and not left out as, as, as someone who kind of gets thrown the crumbs. Um, Communication, I think, is is the essence of the underlying essence of where the problems typically occur. That's been found in the, by the Joint Commission's review of um, root causes of sentinel events, and I think that um, every everybody needs to take responsibility. And I, I think the value of this data is that it brings information forward that patients can consider, and patients do need to know the surgeon is the person who's responsible for the surgery. So patients do need to know if their doc 
is is competent and able and has a good team around them. So this this data is very important both on an individual level and to look at an entire system. I, I'm going to ask you this first, and then I'm sure the doctors will want to weigh in on this, but I think this is something that we hear a lot. And it's, it's two, two parts of the question. Um, it has to do with people wanting to admit mistakes. And, you know, physicians, surgeons in particular, uh, have a very high-stress job in which they are in control of an awful lot of people doing a very complex task. And I've certainly talked to surgeons in the past who don't necessarily want to admit that maybe they've made an error or that anybody on their team has made an error. And then you layer on to that the fact that there is an increased uh, financial need for the individual hospitals or hospital systems to come across as the best possible place to get care, meaning that the transparency that we're all talking about wanting to get out might not be at the forefront when you're trying to make sure that you are the best, most competitive hospital. So I guess I'm wondering if, from a patient safety standpoint, in talking to doctors and systems and patients, if you feel like either one of these things are a problem, people just not wanting to admit mistakes and people just not wanting to be transparent because, indeed, it's in their financial best interest to not be transparent. Um, I, I think, first of all, we have to realize that there are other industries like the airline industry that do have transparency that when there's a problem that occurs, they investigate it and they they continue until they actually have the essence of what happened and they make it public. It's not doing any harm. Those industries have gotten better and better over the years. As far as the premise that by admitting the mistakes and saying we are fallible or that we have done harm, it's going to have a negative financial impact. I'm not sure that actually in the end holds true because I think that when we can address our mistakes, we are able to learn from them and we are able to improve. From a patient's perspective, if something has gone wrong to a patient in the course of surgery or other medical care, and the surgeon or the caregiver comes right out and says, look, this is what happened. This is what we're going to be able to do about it. Um, what can we do to help you? The support, the acknowledgement can go a long, long way towards the patient becoming more invested in their additional future care. And that's going to, in the end, save money. And it's also going to create a higher level of trust in the physicians and in the system. So I, I think the premise that people express that they're afraid that it's going to lead to money loss is just not not necessarily what's going to bear out. Dr. Alberson, do you see either of these things that I just mentioned, Elisa, as barriers at all for some physicians or systems? Um, mistakes, actual mistakes, are really relatively rare. Uh, that's the classic wrong side surgery. I think the issue here is more of technique, mm. and frequently one physician or surgeon might have one technique, and another surgeon would have a slightly different technique, and it turns out over time the technique A is superior to technique B. And you only find this out as you begin to see outcomes that are less optimal on process B versus A. So it's, it's that much more subtle change that's, diff that's difficult. Surgeons are very proud of what they do. They're trained a certain way, and they're usually convinced that what their way is is the best. 
they frequently don't look to see what their colleague might be doing and don't have that opportunity. And as we begin to explore and where, the, where this data is very useful is when physician A, because we surgeons are extraordinarily competitive. When we don't <laughs> see that we're A in the class, we start asking questions, why am I not the best? So in that respect, this is a very, very powerful motivator to affect the change that I think everybody would like to see. Dr. Orlando? So I think uh, I'd like to make it simpler. The question is, what's our true north in terms of making our hospitals safer places? And so at Hartford HealthCare and actually many other hospitals, we measure something called serious safety events. A serious safety event is, uh, is some uh, deviation uh, from accepted care that results in moderate to severe harm or death to a patient. We track that for all of our hospitals, and over the last three years, we've actually reduced the incidence of these serious safety events by, uh, by 50%. So I actually think we are making our hospitals safer, and the Institute of Medicine uh, report, the seminal report in 1999, although it's, it's felt that there may be even more events now, we think that's because of better reporting, because we're so much attuned to that, that we are now calling out adverse events that we previously would have swept under the carpet. So I actually think we are making it safer, and we are doing better, and it's a simple concept, the serious safety event. I had a chance to visit uh, a, a production line at Ford Motor Company with all of their quality leaders, uh, and at, at Ford, they call it things gone wrong. A ser things gone wrong is anything that's wrong with the car that the customer perceives as a problem, and to us, that's a serious safety event, and our goal is, is zero. We're talking today about patient safety on the program. You can join us at 860-275-7266. Will is calling from Southington. Hello, Will. You're on where we live. Yeah. Go ahead. You're on the air. Well, I had asked about uh, uh, my father years ago at 79. He came down with a, a cancerous tumor on his pancreas. And being a farmer type of person, gardening and so forth, being active, uh, uh, he went for examination one day and the uh, doctor said he's got a pancreas tumor on his pan cancerous yeah tumor on his pancreas sure and uh, so his surgeon said he seems like he's strong enough to go under surgery it happened uh, 10 10 hour surgery uh, he was very weak by evening every day he had energy in the morning after the surgery and then by evening, he was almost like a vegetable. He had no energy. Uh, and then 10 days later, he died. And they uh, he's, they said he had a very bad uh, hemorrhage. Uh, what happened here? Is it because of his age? Did, did the surgeon do a oops hmm. hiccup and, and the, uh, sewing him up, whether it be staples, whether it's uh, cat gut, whatever, uh, whatever they used back. Uh, he died in... Uh, 98. Well, let, let me, first of all, Will, thank you very much for sharing that story, and I'm very sorry to hear the story of your father, but I, it, it helps us get to something that I really want to get to, and I'll put this to, to our physicians now, and whenever we do a program like this, I always, you know, uh, make sure to say that we're not diagnosing people on the air, and we're not going to say here what happened, because we have no idea, but Dr. Orlando, when you hear something like this, this is different than some of the elective surgeries we're talking about. This is uh, a tumor on the pancreas, and an elderly person uh, who the, the physician makes the determination that they're okay to go into surgery, 
this is a very different fact pattern than what we're talking about here. But what do you say to someone like Will who, who brings you a story like this? So, Will, first of all, I'm very sorry to hear of that experience. And uh, pancreatic surgery is, is, is complex. It's one of those operations that has a very high complication rate in the best of hands. The complication rate is 50 percent in the most skilled hands. Uh, I think in, from a, a patient, a, c- a consumer looking for health care, you want to have pancreatic surgery done by someone who does a lot of pancreatic surgery because here experience and knowing your way around is essential to having a good outcome. And I just want to stop you very quickly and say this gets to something else about the tool that we have here is if you were to look at a tool for a surgery like this and you saw someone who did a lot of pancreatic surgery, you may very well see more complicated surgeries, more surgeries with resulting complications, but you also might see someone who is more skilled and has seen more different types of patients. Am I reading this right, doctor? Yes. A, a, a complex operation that has a high complication rate, this kind of billing data might lead you to the wrong conclusion. If, but if you're seeking care, you want to go with, with a condition like that to someone who's doing it frequently. Overall, Dr. Alberson, do we expect too little risk out of this? I mean, are we saying that when we go into surgery and we get put under for whether or not it's a it's a knee surgery or whether or not it's a tumor on a pancreas that we're expecting everything to turn out well when indeed every surgery is complicated somewhat risky um i think the expectation of the public is very reasonable for common operations Whipple procedure, that's what this is called, pancreatic excision, is not a common operation and is extraordinarily difficult. Pancreatic leaks are devastating. I'm not certain what happened uh, to to this unfortunate uh, patient, uh, but I just want the the caller to know that all deaths, all deaths are reviewed on what we call a mortality morbidity rounds. They are clearly discussed and carefully analyzed to try to understand what the root cause was if a patient doesn't make it from out uh, from surgery. Uh, because a death is devastating, not just to the patient's family, but quite frankly, to the surgeon. Uh, we, we live with this for the rest of our lives, and uh, we, we all know these patients, and uh, uh, we ask some serious questions. And in fact, the institutions ask serious questions when this happens. Uh, Lisa, you lost a loved one uh, to uh, a medical procedure, and I, I'm assuming that that is part of what drew you to this work. Yes, it most definitely did. Uh, could you tell us about that briefly? Would you mind? Yeah. um, My husband went in for, well, initially he actually went into the hospital to figure out what was going on. He had taken a fall. He was having problems with his back and with his legs. And and he went in to get it diagnosed. After, in the course of 10 days, he had different studies done. None of them were totally conclusive. Um, We went to a hospital. We chose a hospital based on the hospital's reputation. We did not review the surgeons there. Um, We didn't know exactly what was going to be the outcome. He was told after probably about a week that he had to have surgery, that it was actually urgent, that he would lose function of his legs if he didn't have it. And Yet they weren't quite sure what was wrong, and they couldn't tell us very much about things. And a lot of things, particularly in hindsight, weren't adding up. He went in for the surgery, what was supposed to be a relatively straightforward seven- or eight-hour operation, went to about the 18th hour. Um, we kept continually being told something was going wrong, something, you know, not something was going wrong. There was more work that needed to be done. He came out and spent the first five days out of the OR in the neuro ICU. He was paralyzed at that point from the waist down. He lived for 18 years. He suffered 
for 18 years. He was paralyzed from the waist down. Initially, he did regain some function. He had sustained severe spinal cord injury during the course of the surgery, not before it. Um, he got a MRSA staph infection in the wound during the course of the surgery, and he sustained brain damage from the extended amount of time that he was in the OR. So it, it had devastating effects, and we lost him five years ago. I'm very sorry to hear that story, and, and I'm, I'm quite sure that um, your story and the story of many others who, who are listening uh, today um, help us get at the reason why we want to have conversations like this. Uh, started today, my Marshall Allen from ProPublica. Uh, their story is making the cut, why choosing the right surgeon matters even more than you know. We're talking about the, the tool that they've put together to let you know a little bit more about complications from surgery. Uh, joining us is Lisa Freeman, Executive Director of the Connecticut Center for Patient Safety, who you just heard from. Dr. Rocco Orlando is a general surgeon, senior VP and chief medical officer at Hartford Healthcare. Dr. Peter Albertson is a professor of surgery, chief and program director of the Division of Urology at the University of Connecticut. We'll be right back after this break, where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's been a big year for local politics in Connecticut. We've been talking a lot about mayor's races in Hartford and Bridgeport. Coming up on the next Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, we'll be talking about the race for mayor in New London, also taking a look at a lot of the other news that is in the news this week. Join me and Colin McEnroe, as always, on Wednesdays on the Wheelhouse. Today we're talking about a new report by ProPublica that compares the complication rates of nearly 17,000 surgeries nationwide to force hospitals to deal with some outliers responsible for a large percentage of medical errors. What can we learn from surgeons with low complication rates? How can we instill a culture of patient safety in the doctors who are training right now? We've just got a few minutes left, and I want to go first to you, Marshall Allen, as we try to do some takeaways here from our conversation. Marshall Allen, the ProPublica reporter who helped to put together this, this tool, what are some things that you have learned from this that help you and maybe others who are asking you about this uh, to make better decisions when going for uh, an elective surgery? I mean, are there some big takeaways for you in all this? Well, I think one of the big takeaways um, is that transparency is a very effective motivator. Um, it, it informs patients, and, and then when patients are informed, they can ask better and more informed questions. And that uh, leads to better conversations and better informed consent between doctors and patients. And then also um, it spurs, um, you know, the transparency spurs hospital administrators and boards to make this a bigger priority, make bigger investments um, in improving patient safety. It motivates, um, you know, as one of the doctors said, the surgeons themselves are extremely competitive and they want to do their best. And so it motivates them to uh, look at who's performing very well and examine their performance and see if there's anything they can learn from each other. And transparency is just a very effective um, tool. And, in fact, the National Patient Safety Foundation calls transparency the magic bullet or the magic pill, I guess, um, to cure uh, this problem of patient safety. So I, I think that's one of the big takeaways. And one of the other ones just related to the story of Lisa and her husband um, is just there's, there's an incredible amount of suffering that's taking place that's not being measured, it's not being quantified, and there are, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of families a year suffering harm related to medical care, and, you know, it is awkward and it's uncomfortable and it's difficult to talk about, and 
Um, it puts people on the spot, and, uh, you know, people don't always like that. But we have to keep the patients first. And, um, you know, people in the medical community do that as well. But it's really easy, I think, sometimes for medical providers to, um, you know, get in the routine of doing what they're doing. And when they're not really carefully measuring outcomes, they don't really realize that a lot of these families are suffering. And so that's why I think these things are important. Marshall Allen is a reporter for ProPublica, Making the Cut, Why Choosing the Right Surgeon Matters Even More Than You Know, helped us uh, talk about this issue. And we'll have links to that story and the tools on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. He joined us today from NPR's Midtown Manhattan Studios. Thank you so much, Marshall. I appreciate it. Thank you. Lisa Freeman, what are some things that patients can do to find out the right information before they go into surgery? Well, I think that this tool is a beginning. Um, it opens the conversation. It gives patients a lot more information than they had, you know, before it came out. And I think patients, though, need to educate themselves. They need to understand that things do happen and that they have to participate in their care and that they have to invest themselves in learning as much as they possibly can about the provider, about the facility, about their condition. They have to request the information if the you know, caregivers aren't forthcoming with it. They have to ask, what kind of complications can I expect? What, what are the expected outcomes? What can I do differently? Are there choices? Can I choose to do nothing? What's going to happen if I don't do the surgery? Um, all of these factors should be weighed in. And asking a surgeon, how often have you done the procedure and how many complications have you run into? It's, it's not an unreasonable question to ask a surgeon, and frankly, if a surgeon is not inclined to answer that, it would raise my flags. So, Elisa tells us about some questions we should ask any doctor, but so then how do we start to get at which doctor is going to be the best doctor? I mean, if I was casting about Dr. Orlando for a, a surgeon, I wouldn't even know where to start. Where do you start? So I think you're going to start with, uh, you're going to look at initially recommendations of your primary care physician who may have some knowledge, but the most important part of the conversation is to ask those questions of the surgeon during that consultation. What is your complication rate for this operation? How many have you done? Uh, what is the failure rate of this particular operation in your hands? If they're evasive and don't give you a clear and forthright answer, you should probably look elsewhere for care. And we just have about 30 seconds, but any, any things to add on to that, Dr. Albertson? No, but ask questions. Ask other patients. If this is an elective operation, ask your friends, church, whatever organization you're in. Anyone else had this operation? Who'd you use? How was it? If you know any anesthesiologists in the hospital, talk to them. You know any nurses in the OR, talk to them. The more people you ask, the more information you have. I think that we're in agreement for that. So more information is better. It's uh, it's a theme throughout our program all the time. I want to thank Dr. Peter, Peter Albertson from the University of Connecticut. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks also to Dr. Rocco Orlando from Hartford Healthcare. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And thank you also to Lisa Freeman, Executive Director of the Connecticut Center for Patient Safety. Thank you so much for your story and also all of your work, Lisa. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Our program is always online at wnpr.org slash where we live. It was produced today by Betsy Kaplan, technical producer Kion Wolf, executive producer Katie I'm John Dankowski. This is Where We Live.